Okay, so beginning in 1 Timothy chapter 4, at verse 1, we will read together. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Lord, I want to ask you to give me strength to uh, speak the the, the heart of this passage in a way that's pleasing to you. Um, As you know, it's been a, a wrestling match this week, trying to uh, decipher what to say, what not to say, the way to say it, and which which is, holds to the truth and isn't um, just coming out of my own thoughts and head. I pray, God, that you would uh, help me to discard during the message anything that is not from you and to speak only truth. And, um, yeah, I just want to uh, make it as clear to the church as possible what your the original truth that you intended to be so that we don't get misled in any way. So we just uh, ask you for your time, your presence and your time now, in Christ's name. So remember last week that we concluded our time together with verses 14 through 16, and Paul wrote here that he'd he'd been writing these things to the church so that they would know how to conduct themselves in the household of God, which was the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And he even wrote a uh, a, a, a summary statement here, a creed or a hymn that was to basically, in a nutshell, summarize the gospel message about the identity of Christ and why he came and what his mission was. And of course, all of this was in response to the presence of the false teachers who had caused disruption in the church. And they were causing many to wander away from the faith and the gospel message, both in doctrine and in life. And while we've mentioned these false teachers every week, uh, right from the beginning, um, we've never really been given a description of these men until now. And that's the focus of chapter 4, as we pick up on the nature of the teaching of the false teachers and the characteristics of who who they are. So the first thing that Paul reveals to us right away is that he reveals to Timothy that the emergence of the false teachers should have not come as a surprise. The emergence of the false teachers should not have come as a surprise. It had been predicted. We pick this up in verse 1. But the, lat- but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, I would suggest that the timing of this event Um, The timing of this in terms of the prediction of the Holy Spirit telling Paul this is going to occur happened in Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, Paul there is in Miletus, this um, place not too far from Ephesus, and he calls the Ephesian elders together. Remember, Timothy is written in Ephesus, right? That's where Timothy is stationed. And so Paul is in Miletus and he calls the elders of Ephesus together and he reminds them of, the, of his faithfulness in declaring the gospel to the Gentiles. So Paul gives them a reminder of this. And then he says this. Um, sorry. This is what he says. And now behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, 
not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Now notice this. He says, when he's speaking to the elders, the Holy Spirit testifies to me that everywhere I go, there's going to be bonds and afflictions. He's going to be persecuted for the faith. And he talks about suffering in Jerusalem. But then he also makes the prediction that he knows that savage wolves, false teachers, are going to come in amongst the Ephesians and not spare the flock. So when he says here that the Spirit explicitly says in latter times some will fall away from the faith, that was the timing in which Paul was speaking about. Now how the Holy Spirit revealed this to Paul is not mentioned, whether it was a vision or the voice of a prophet within the church, but the key was not so much how it was revealed, the point was that it was revealed, it had been predicted. But notice when Paul says this was to occur, he defines it as being in latter times. In latter times, that's when the the, uh, the, the falling of the way from the faith would occur. Now, when you hear that, um, when you hear that kind of language, you think of latter times or end times as being something in our future, something in our timeline, and, and, or at least our kids' timeline. And you don't really associate latter times or end times with a church, say, 500 years ago or even 2,000 years ago, like Paul was claiming here. But what Paul makes clear to us is that the latter times was a period of time that they were living in. This was a present reality for them and not some future era. And that's because for the apostles, the latter times was a time period that began after the first coming of Christ, really at the death and resurrection of Jesus, and ultimately be fulfilled or culminated at the second coming in the Lord's return. Now, we see this understanding of latter times really early on in the apostles' understanding, or sorry, in the early church. At only 50 days, 50 days after Jesus was resurrected, Peter makes this declaration in Acts chapter 2. He says, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. It shall be in the last days that God says, I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. So it's important here because this is only 50 days after the crucifixion and resurrection, and Peter is describing with the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, them being in the last days. The last days. Peter later on, at the end of his life, uh, makes uh, in chapter 4, verse 7 of his first letter, which occurs 30 years later, approximately, after this declaration, he makes this comment there, The end of all things is near, so be sound in judgment and sober in spirit for the purpose of prayer. So Peter, you know, early on in the ministry, declares they're in the latter days. Thirty, About 30 years later, three decades later, he makes a declaration near the end of his life, where the end of all things is near. So the apostles always understood that the latter days was not some future event just 2,000 years later, that it was the time period of the church era right after the first coming of Jesus Christ. Now again, this is important for us to recognize that this is really the true definition of latter times, because the latter times is not something that's only reserved for us. 
it's a time period that the entire church age has really lived in when you define it biblically. And notice what Paul points out is that one of the key markers of this time. He describes it as a time in which people will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits. I could do an entire sermon on what it is to fall away from the faith, but I thought I would just instead read you a footnote from my Bible. Uh, I have a John MacArthur Bible. I'll read you the footnote because I'm in agreement with this statement. He says, he describes falling away from the faith this way. Those who fall prey to the false teachers will abandon the Christian faith. The Greek word for fall away is the source of the English word to apostatize and refer to someone moving away from an original position. Again, what's the context here? The context of the church. These are Christian brothers and sisters. This is one of the, the things that will happen in the latter times. So even though the time uh, of the, of as, as we await the Lord's return is something that we wait for in grateful anticipation, it's also sad because it's a time marked with people falling away, a time marked with apostasy. And even though this time or this apostasy will come to a climax nearer the Lord's return and His second coming, the reality is this has been a marker of the church through the entire church age. And it was happening in Ephesus. It was happening there. So, how did this happen in Ephesus? How would a believer fall away from the faith within the church context? Remember, this is all happening in the church. Well, we pick it up in verse 2. He says, or actually the start of uh, halfway through verse 1 into verse 2. He says, these brothers and sisters are paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. It's interesting, you know, um, here we are revealed the source of their heresy. If you were in the church in Ephesus at the time, Timothy had shown up, and Timothy took you aside and said to you, can you give me the inside scoop on what's really going on here? Who's responsible for all of this? you might have expected, or you might have given him an answer, something like this. Well, you know, Timothy, um, it's Hymenaeus and Alexander, the guys that Paul wrote about in chapter 1. They're the real issue of why the church is in trouble. Now, while this statement is, is uh, not untrue, the onus was in part on the false teachers due to the fact that they had a seared conscience, as as he points out in the, in the verse 2. In other words, they had a they had a conscience that was desensitized to what they knew to be right and wrong. Uh, notice where the emphasis is really put by Paul here. The ultimate source really is Satan. The ultimate source of what's going on is Satan. People are paying attention to the deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. So Paul understood that even though Timothy may have been confronting men in the flesh, right, who had sort of like a, who were in this sort of physical presence amongst them, ultimately the battle for truth and the battle for one's eternal destiny and eternal life and the gospel was against Satan and the spiritual forces. The, hev- the, the battle for, for people's lives was won and lost in the heavenly realms. And I'd encourage you to write down Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 10, if you want to read about the spiritual warfare. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. 
But I got a picture this week, church, of what this may look like as I was preparing. I was uh, thinking about the Muppet shows. And, uh, you know, when we watch the Muppet shows and you watch Kermit the Frog, for example, uh, you see Kermit the Frog speaking. And you see Kermit the Frog with all his uh, uh, frivolous actions and all his like, spastic movements. And you think, man, this guy's hilarious. Like he's, uh, you know, he's dynamic and he makes you laugh and so on and so forth. And if you're a kid watching, you actually think he's real. Um, but ultimately, we all know that behind Kermit is a puppet master. Someone with you, uh, who's got a voice in the, the, and someone who's calling all the shots and pulling the strings. Uh, no pun intended. Well, this is exactly the vision I got for how it works with uh, the false teachers and the doctrines of demons. Of course, the analogy breaks down in that we're not like a puppet, inanimate objects, and we do have free will. But I think you get the point that behind every false teacher is a puppet master. There's a puppet master, someone ultimately pulling the strings. So how do the doctrines of demons enter the church anyway? And how does he cause someone to fall away? Well, I first want to point this out. That what, Remember, this is the context of the church. In the context of the church, he will use, often as his material, God's word. I'll say that again. How does he get people to fall away? Believe it or not, he will often use God's word as his material. It's interesting in chapter 1, remember what Paul talked about these false teachers in terms of the definition of these guys, he said they wanted to be teachers of the law, but did not know what they were talking about. They even used genealogies. And there was a number of those genealogies in the Old Testament. We know in verse 3 that their, their heresy had to do with marriage and food. The Old Testament scriptures were filled with teaching on marriage and food. Of course, when Satan uses the word of God, he doesn't do it in, with sowing seeds of truth, but he mixes truth with lies, enough to create deception. Now, this should come to no surprise as us church. And this has come as no surprise. Do you remember what happened in the garden with Eve when sin entered the world? Remember what the subject matter was that led to Eve's deception and fall? It wasn't some strange philosophy he was introducing to her. It wasn't some new age thinking that was foreign to her. His conversation with Eve centered around the word of God. It's the word of God, the one command he had given her. And that was about eating the tree from one of the trees. That was the subject matter of his temptation. Remember the temptation of Jesus himself in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. In Satan's second attempt to try to get uh, Christ himself to fall and to follow him. Uh, he uses Psalm 91, Psalm 91 as the focus of his material with Jesus Christ. Again, he, he, he didn't do it in a truthful way, but he wasn't afraid to use the word of God to try to create a fall. Isn't that fascinating, church? That within the church context, he can use the word of God to try to create uh, disruption and disunity and for people to fall away from the faith. The second tactic he uses is how he introduces the doctrines in the first place. He doesn't enter in a way that draws immediate attention. 
He doesn't do a grandiose entrance with a pitchfork and horns and start yelling, you know, quick everybody, grab a gun and like go shoot somebody. Nothing like that. He comes in with deception. He comes in under the radar. He comes in teaching in a way that sounds attractive. It's, it's appealing. It sounds right. It's, it's convincing. It's to, it's to be accepted and not rejected. It's no wonder that he's defined as an angel of light. In 2 Corinthians 11, that's the description given to him. And why this is an important description is the context in Corinth is the same as here. There's false teachers that have got the Corinthians all up in arms and creating problems. And so Paul has to warn against them and he gives a description of the false teachers first. But then he says this, And no wonder these false teachers are like this, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants are also masquer- sorry, if, if his servants also masquerade as the servants of righteousness, their end will be what their actions deserve. Now this word masquerade is to disguise, to disguise oneself. So false teachers disguise themselves as righteous people, that they're highly devoted to God. It's not surprising then this is the case because Satan himself does the exact same thing. You know, I always found it interesting, church, that when Satan did attempt Eve, that she wasn't startled in any way when he approached her. However the context was like in the garden, hard for us to get our minds around, she didn't jump back in fear. She didn't uh, freak out and run scared. She accepted him like, like it was just a natural conversation. There was no fear, no intimidation. It was very natural for her to receive him. Nothing seemed unusual. And this is exactly how Satan gains a foothold today. And you know what, church? His ultimate goal, his ultimate goal is for everyone's destruction. Not just physically, but eternally. He wants, really, Satan hates life. Satan hates life. He hates you. (laughs) And he wants you to die, not only physically, but he wants to especially kill you in the spiritual realm. There's an incredible verse in John 8, 43, with Jesus talking to the Pharisees. And he makes this conversation, he makes this clear to them. So he's arguing with the religious leaders of the day. The priests of Israel, like the religious leaders, like the pastors of the church. That's who he's talking to. And listen to the language. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you aren't able to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Listen, church. He is a murderer. He's a murderer. How does he murder? By not holding to the truth, by lying, by lying, and by lying. If he can get someone to believe that they've been accepted by God, by his standards and his religious uh, uh, fallacies, then he ultimately kills people. Because they will not spend eternity with God by believing his lies. But further evidence that Satan hates life is found right here in our text in their heresy. Right here in our text. 
Paul reveals two areas in which the doctrine of demons had taken a foothold in Ephesus. Look at verse 3. He says, he, um, he says, Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. first category that they had a doctrines of demons was in the category of forbidding of marriage. The forbidding of marriage. Now by forbidding marriage, these false teachers were ultimately doing two things. One, they were demoting one thing that God stood for and promoting one thing he didn't. I'll say it again. They were demoting one thing God stood for and promoting one thing he didn't. So what were they demoting? Well, by forbidding marriage, they were forbidding life in itself, the existence of life. You see, remember the biblical context always in which life is to be brought into this world, in which children are to be born, is always the marriage union. It was always God's intention that the sexual intimacy occur within the marriage bed with two loving parents in a covenant relationship. That was God's design. By forbidding marriage, these people then were ultimately rejecting God's command to be fruitful and multiply. They were for forbidding God's command to be fruitful and multiply. Which was, of course, his main command in Genesis to Adam and Eve and Noah. They were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And we already know that family was an issue from our study in chapter 2 verse 15. Remember the problem in Ephesus is that these false teachers had women forsaking their primary roles of mothers the role that God had created them for. And that's because they had forbidden marriage. And so now women were, were, were taking on roles that weren't intended for them. And secondly, they were not able to have family anymore, which was to fail to reproduce life. Second, what forbidding marriage promoted? It would promote sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. You see, because God's sexual intimacy was to occur in the marriage bed, to forbid it was then to promote immorality. You see, why? Because, as, as Paul knew in other places, the, he, um, the, uh, sorry, uh, something going on there. Um, in other places, Paul said that a, a lot of people who are single um, burn with passion. They have a high desire for another partner. The problem is, um, again, it was to be reserved for the marriage union. Now, what Paul did have a place for singleness, however. Paul did say singleness was an option. It, could be, it was permitted and even preferred, but only if one had been given the gift of God. Without the gift of God, it was not, the person wasn't going to be able to fight against the sexual temptation as easily. So he understood this was an issue. So that's why he wrote in verse 4 in 1 Corinthians that each one is to have his own wife. Chapter 7, verse 4. Because of immorality, each one is to have his own wife. Because he knew that by not getting married, it would lead to the potential for fornication. Well, we know from evidence from this letter, this was occurring in terms of the temptation. In chapter 5, verse 11, listen to this in regards to young widows. Women who had been married, who had now been um, uh, widowed. And listen to this. He says, Refuse to put younger widows on the list, for when they feel sensual desires in disregard for Christ, they want to get married. 
this incurring condemnation on themselves. Now we're going to talk about this later, but we can see that these women here have sensual desires, and they obviously made a pledge for singleness, but they can't maintain it. <laughs> they, can't, they can't do it. And so Paul's saying, let them get married. Well, let them get married, but the false teachers are saying, don't get married. So what do you do with a sexual temptation? Well, again, it's a temptation to fall into immorality because God never gave those girls the gift of singleness. Clearly, he didn't. You know, I was thinking about how this applies to us, and we have a modern example of how these doctrines of demons can affect, affect us. You know, in the Roman Catholic Church, there are 400,000 priests worldwide today. 400,000 priests worldwide today. And it's not suggested that they remain celibate. It's demanded. It's demanded. And here's the problem. They then can't fulfill God's command to be fruitful and multiply. And they can never experience the joy that family can bring. But second, it's no coincidence, I would suggest, that there's a highly unusual case of sexual abuse amongst children and priests in the Roman Catholic Church. Now, what I'm not saying is that sexual sin and abuse can't happen in evangelical circles either, because we do know of lots of tragic stories within our own, within our own uh, uh, evangelical circles of people who have fallen into sin. But isn't it unusual that there's a high amount of cases of abuse with priests and children, especially young boys? Again, because why? Because these people don't have the gift of singleness. They don't have the gift of singleness, but it's been demanded that they remain single. And so it creates all sorts of problems and no place for their sexual desires to be expressed. And so they get themselves in trouble. And here's what's so crazy, church. This is so crazy. Nowhere in scripture does it ever say priests can't marry. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment of me. Remember, Paul's an apostle. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Do you know who Cephas is or Cephas is? That's another name for Peter. Peter. How many Catholic churches are named St. Peter's or St. You know, Paul's? <laughs> you know, Paul had the gift of singleness. Peter didn't. Peter was an apostle who was married he was married. And they and the church the Roman Catholic Church especially holds Peter in high regard. So but they make they make marriage um, an issue of celibacy, even though Peter himself, who they 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 love and, and want to model themselves after, was married. It's absolutely crazy. It's a doctrine of demons. It's a doctrine of demons. Second abstinence from certain foods. We pick this up in verse, uh, I'll read 3 and 4 and 5 together. It says, Sir, These men forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created by gratefully, to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Now, what foods were being rejected here, we don't know. But the issue for, of food 
in terms of what to eat and not to eat was a constant issue that Paul had to deal with through his entire ministry. I mean, lots of letters in the Bible are written to different churches, helping them understand what a what a Christian was to eat and not to eat in terms of uh, how to live out their faith. Paul spent put lots of ink to paper over this issue and put out lots of fires over this issue. Now, Paul says that everything's on the table for a believer, no pun intended. Um, they're free to eat anything, but the false teachers had made food an issue. And if you sat under their teaching, no doubt you would have heard that by eating a particular way or by not following their or by following their biblical diet, they would have taught you that that was a path to purity. There was a path to holiness, or if there was a, there was a path to righteousness to be truly accepted by God, and that would have been the message they would have given you. Paul's answer, of course, that as followers of Christ, they were free to eat anything, and he gave two reasons. First, that God created all food food good. He created all food good. In verse three. Again, he says, God has created these things to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth, for everything created by God is good. So again, God's the source of food, and it's all created good. So Paul's logic was clear. Since God was a source of all food and created it good, that means there was no restrictions in terms of diet. This, of course, was in line with Jesus' teaching earlier to his disciples in Mark chapter 7, verse 19. He declared foods all clean in the presence of his disciples. In fact, to not eat what God made, to not eat his food, would be to take a shot at God, would take a shot at him, a pot shot, at God's creation being evil. Because if you were to reject his food, you're basically saying, God, you don't make good stuff. I mean, it's like a, like a, the supper table when, when the kids complain about what mom cooked. Like, I don't, you know, that's uh, that's a pretty, if you're doing a good job when you're parenting, that's a no-no at the table. <laughs> you get on your kids, and there should be discipline in some form for complaining against mom's food. Because that's a really offensive to mom when the kids say, I don't like what you make. That's the same for, for us if we say, God, I don't like your food. We don't want your food. And of course, the false teachers were creating this division. But Paul gives a second reason for why no food was to be restricted to believers, and that's found in verse 5. He says, For it is sanctified by means of the word and of God and by prayer. Now the word sanctified means to be set apart, to be set apart for something to be used. The word of God here obviously would be a reference to the gospel. It's, it's, a, it's um, a synonym for the gospel. It's used multiple times in the pastoral epistles to refer to the gospel. So it's sanctified by the word of God because the scriptures reveal, the gospel reveals that Christ fulfilled all the ceremonial food laws on the cross. And as a result of his death on the cross, he abolished all dietary restrictions that were in the Old Testament. Secondly, um, it's to be received with thanksgiving, by prayer. I guess you use the word prayer. Another word we use is to say grace, by grace. Now, at first read, it sounds like the prayer has some kind of magical powers. That if you, you pray over food, it changes its, its content and makes it good. But we know this can't be true because Paul already declared all food good. So it can't become good just because you prayed over it. But really, the prayer here, or the grace, was, was offered during the meal as an opportunity to give thanks. To give thanks for your gratefulness to God for being your provider 
and to give praise for him of being the source of all things. Gratitude is the key, or thanksgiving is the key in terms of the prayer in this verse. You'll notice in verse 3, he says, God has created things to be gratefully shared in. Again, he says in verse 4 that nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude. So again, this is an opportunity to be grateful to God for the food he's produced and to thank him for being the provider of all things. Now I realize in terms of the context that the reason why these false teachers were teaching on uh, on this and why this was called the doctrine of demon was because it, it flew in the face of the gospel. Because they were teaching that by abstaining from marriage and abstaining by certain foods, you, you'd attain a righteousness apart from Christ. And it would give you right standing before God and would be the path to holiness. So again, um, Christ's blood on the cross was not sufficient. It wasn't enough. You needed to observe their rituals in order to be, become right with the Lord. Of course, this was, a, it was total heresy. Total heresy. But one of the key observations I want to point out to you here, or I think it, it's really important for the context as well, besides uh, how, uh, how salvation was accomplished, was really its observation in verse 3. Lotus in verse 3 what it says there. It says that foods were created by God to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Notice the emphasis there for the purpose of food. It's for hospitality. It's for fellowship. That's one of the purposes of food, is to get together and have a giant barbecue to celebrate and eat wonderful meals together. Now, this was one of the early distinguishing markers of the early church. In Acts chapter 2, listen to the early church's description. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Praising God, so there's the gratitude again, and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. But again, notice the pattern in the early church. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts. There's no division in food here. There's no restriction in food. The false teachers are making food an issue. So what the false teachers are doing is they're dividing the community. They're dividing the community. They're creating what I learned in Regent College, a, a nice little phrase, a two-tiered table fellowship. <laughs> a two-tiered table fellowship. Right? Because on one side, you have individuals or groups of people that are saying, I can only eat this way as being godly. And the other person is saying, I don't have to eat this way to be godly. So guess what happens when they gather together? They split into two different groups. Two different groups. Food, instead of being a place to rejoice together like it was in the early church and be glad and sincere, has become a divisive point in the church. A divisive point. And it leads to judgment. It leads to judgment. Listen, in Colossians 2.16, in dealing with food being an issue, Paul says this, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. The reason that he said that, because they were judging one another for what they're eating and drinking. One was a path to holiness and righteousness, and one wasn't. And Paul said, stop it. Stop it. There's division in the church over food. No wonder this is a doctrine of demons. They were undoing what Christ had done. Christ had brought two, to, like the Jew and the Gentile, together under one roof. 
and he he and um, that would have required uh, huge uh, huge uh, acceptance of one another in the area of food. And so they were basically creating a two-tiered fellowship, and this is why it was a doctrine of demons. And we know food has an incredible meaning means for uniting people. You know, I mean, if you want to have, uh, you can't ever really throw a party and not have food. If you don't, people will say, "Man, that guy really dropped the ball," and like on that, you know, having us over. One of the the most enjoyable things when we get together is uh, in groups is to always have food. That's part of the major the major. Um, excitement about gathering imagine going to a wedding without food you would no doubt complain all the way home that there's something was was missing well again remember too what we talked about with elders elders were to be hospitable why was hospitality important well you could provide for needs for people you could do that was a place for evangelism to occur it was a place for encouragement to occur a play for a place for discipleship to occur you see why the devil would want to create uh, food as being an issue in the church? He would want this unity. He would want people to isolate themselves from one another. He would want people to judge one another. He would want to create division. All of these things are breeding grounds for weakening one person's faith, for creating discouragement and abandoning the faith as the ultimate goal. So how does this apply to us? I'll finish with these thoughts. About three years ago, I was discipling uh, someone, a young woman who had just come to faith, and she'd been a Christian for maybe six months to a year, and she was growing uh, tremendously. And uh, she came to me one day and just shocked me with a question. She says, Andrew, have you ever heard about eating biblically? And I go, eating biblically? And she goes, yeah, there's a new Christian diet out there that is like honoring to the Lord. And I'm like, what's that? And she goes, you have to eat basically how they did in the Old Testament in the Levitical law. <laughs> and uh, she goes, and if you do that, it'll even cure your cancer. And I said, oh, okay, uh, that's interesting. And I let her talk some more. And my answer back to her was along the same lines as Paul to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 8.8. 8. I basically said, well, this is his words, but food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do eat or no better if we do eat. But again, this had crept into the Christian evangelical circles. Somehow there was this belief that if you, you could be more godly if you ate biblically. And again, there was a return to the Old Testament law, the very thing that Christ died and fulfilled on the cross. He abolished those laws on the cross. But can you imagine the effects in the church, evangelical church? If, you, if Genesis House had a two-tiered eating system, where one foods were some people rejected and some people accepted and claimed that it was in the name of God. Could you imagine what would happen to us? The division that would occur in our church. We'd have a spiritually elite group and a spiritually non-elite group. And the judgment that would happen. Not only that, we'd become weirdos to the outsiders in the world. I mean, it would limit your evangelism greatly. Someone invites you over to their house. You're a Christian with a high spiritual sensitivity to these foods. A non-believer invites you to their house and you start to share your faith and you won't eat their food that's served before you because you can't touch that stuff? I mean, that would, be, that would be absolutely disastrous to the gospel. It's hard to have a relationship with someone if you, if, uh, if, uh, you reject what they offer. 
This is why Jesus was so powerful in when he sent out the 72 in, in uh, his ministry. He actually said to them, basically, when you go out, when you go out and you do uh, ministry on, in my name, eat what's ever put before you. That's exactly what he says. When you go out, you eat what's put before you, for that is your reward. Could you imagine what would happen if for, for Jesus' men to go out into evangelistic opportunities and reject the food that was put in front of them? It would create, they would shut their ears to the gospel message. There would be an insult. I want to finish with this thought, church. And I say this, I make the, I say this um, as just my, my thoughts. And I think I've done, I've spoken to the biblical text in terms of what God intended. Um, at least I hope I have. But I want to just raise one more issue just to think about. Just to think about. I get that the issue in Ephesus was more, was had to do with that uh, eating a particular way was a path to holiness and a path to righteousness. And that was the intent. But I can't help but wonder if Satan has weaved his way into our church in a different way. In a different way. Here's why I say this. I don't know about you, but I find it interesting that it's more and more difficult to share meals with one another and to do hospitality uh, than it, what it used to be. The reason is, is because there's so many diets out there and people have so many uh, thoughts about what is a healthy way to eat that they've put restrictions in place in their own lives as to what is right and what is wrong for them. Now I get it. Some of us have legitimate health issues. There are some people that, for example, if they ate a certain food like peanuts, they would go into a, a shock and they could potentially die. And I know other people that who have maybe have Crohn's or different things, they, they, they just can't digest certain foods. So I, I'm not talking about those who have major, major health problems and can have become deathly sick with these types of things. But I am speaking to those of us who have what I call strong preferences. Strong preferences. Not those who are toxic when they eat, for, who can become toxic, but those who just, just uh, prefer to eat certain ways or have slight agitations in the way they feel after. I mean, I, I, I've talked to different women in the last while, just different people randomly, and they've all admitted that it's been hard. They're afraid now to invite certain people over to their houses within the church community because they don't know if they're going to offend someone with the food they offer. And they're afraid that if they make something, it could be rejected. And so instead of inviting them over where they could be encouraged, strengthened, uh, have a great time of fellowship, they just choose not to for fear that there could be a division in what was served. And there's a true story. We had a, we had a not from our church, and from another church, we had a family come to our house about five years ago. And my wife, for example, made a whole bunch of cupcakes uh, for this uh, family, that knowing that they're going to come over to our house for a visit. I think they were here on some kind of a tournament or something. And so Janice made a whole bunch of desserts thinking that the kids would scoff them all up because this person had kids. And she went out of her way to do all these things. And when the, when the woman came over with her children, she rejected the cupcakes. Said, I don't want them. And she says, my kids don't eat sugar. <laughs> had nothing to do with uh, uh, any allergies, nothing. My kids just don't eat sugar. Well, guess what? My, this is about five years ago. My wife has not forgotten that. Do you know how hard it is for us to, to think about inviting her back to our home? Now, we would, 
because the, the Lord asks us to be hospitable, but that there's a little uneasiness in terms of what they would like to have her back in our house. Because again, she has rejected the very thing that my wife has offered. Just pure preferences. Our preferences have become so prevalent that often we're unwilling to share in thanksgiving with others. And I just can't help but wonder, because Satan's, Satan's crafty, he's sneaky, I wonder if he's weaved himself into our churches in this way as well. And I'll finish with one just little thing. This is why it's so important, at least from my, my opinion. This is my opinion. This is my preference. I don't, this, is, this doesn't have to be the way you parent your own children. This is my preference, and I admit it. But my, I, for me, it's really important that my children learn to eat other people's foods in their homes. It's really important. Because I know that for those of you who have prepared meals for others and have been rejected as wives, especially, you've been hurt. You've potentially been hurt in this area. So we don't want our children to be the cause of offense to you either. And so we're trying to teach our boys you need to eat everything that's put in front of you because it's an act of love. It's an act of love to show the other person that you appreciate them and that you care for what they provided for you. There's much more that can be said, and I know that's just my preference. And uh, again, um, but I thought I'd leave that out there with you, and uh, we can talk about this later on. But I want to leave you with my lessons for today. Lesson number one. The latter times is not just some future historical event, but it has existed ever since the first coming of Christ. The latter times is not just some future historical event, but has existed ever since the first coming of Christ. And now why do I say this? Well, because I think it's important, because you and I, when we talk about end times, end times, when do you associate that with? You think that that's our generation or our children's generation. But just thinking about it from the apostles' point of view, latter times existed back then. That was the time that even at Pentecost they considered themselves to be in, 50 days after the crucifixion and resurrection. So the latter times really is, a, is basically the time since the first coming in anticipation for a second coming. It's the entire church era. So again, is it a huge lesson? I don't think so, but it's good to think biblically in terms of how definitions are used. Number two, one of the distinguishing features of latter times is that believers will fall away from the faith. That is one of the, the, the features of it. True, the climax in terms of abandoning of the faith will occur near the second coming, uh, near, near the Christ's return, but it has been present through the entire church age. Read Matthew 24. Read Matthew 24, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It talks about um, people abandoning the faith as being part of uh, the church history. That's just one of the re sad realities. Again, what I like about the verse, though, he says some. So some. He doesn't say all or the majority. He just says in, in chapter 4 of Timothy, some will fall away from the faith. That's why I was really encouraged today about Bill's testimony uh, Evie's dad. He isn't one of the sum. He persevered right to the end and did not fall prey to the doctrines of demons. Lesson number three. Even though the human being even though human beings are the means by which false teachers enters false teaching enters a church, the ultimate source is Satan. 
Take it, that word the should be out of there in the first sentence. It should read, even though human beings are the means by which false teaching enters the church, the ultimate source is Satan. Again, this gets back to verse uh, 1 and 2. Yes, false teachers are present. Yes, they're the ones speaking. But ultimately, their doctrine comes from the spiritual realm. And Satan comes in an, as an angel of light. He comes in a way of a deceptive, masquerading way. And he's not afraid to use the word of God as a source of his material. He, he's not afraid to enter into conversation regarding truth. Of course, he maligns it and twists it for his purposes, but he ultimately knows the truth. He just tries to destroy us with the, with the very word we hold, we believe brings us life. And finally, what Satan can accomplish if he gets his way? Number one, he will be able to separate professing believers from God. That's chapter 4, verse 1. In latter times, some will fall away from the faith. He can do that. Number two, he will be able to separate believers from one another. So true with food, right? So true with food. Two-tiered uh, Christianity, two-tiered system, keeping one another apart in hospitality, keeping one another apart in fellowship. He's a master of deception. And ultimately, ultimately, he puts an end to our lives, both physically and spiritually. He can put an end to our life. He can... You know, uh, I noticed in the in the scriptures, like when when Satan um, was dem demonically um, possessing people, for example, he was throwing children into fires, and he was uh, they, the guy at the tombs was cutting himself deeply and gashing himself. He was trying, like he was just destroying his physical flesh. But ultimately, that's not his his main goal. His ultimate goal is spiritual, and that's John eight forty three. He says he was a murderer from the beginning. He didn't actually kill Adam and Eve in, in the physical sense. He killed them spiritually and God had to redeem them in the garden. So again, this is what can happen if Satan gets his way. Now I've said a ton. I've said an absolute ton. And uh, all of these uh, topics could have been their own individual sermons. So I'll be very curious as to what you think. So let's uh, have a time of discussion.